If you've never seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, let me warn you, it is filled with profanity and violence. But having said that and having warned you, I must tell you the first 20 minutes of that movie is worth your viewing. And the reason it is, is that everything you see that happened on the beaches of Normandy actually happened. That's not just Hollywood. They recreated the scenes that were handwritten from soldiers' diaries who landed there. So all the events that occur on the landing in the landing scene of Saving Private Ryan are, are historically factual. They did occur, and they tried to recreate them true to the way in which they occurred. The whole movie is about a woman who has several sons, and all of them have been killed except one. And the army doesn't like, and the, the, the military doesn't like for a, a family to lose all their children. And if there's one left and they can save that one child, they will go and try to find and save him. So that's really the plot line of the movie. They send a squadron of people out to find Private Ryan and save him because he's the last of his siblings. And in order to persuade the people to do that, one of the military officers read this letter from the Civil War. Dear Madam, I have been shown in the files of the War Department a statement of the Adjutant General of Massachusetts that you are the mother of five sons who have died gloriously on the field of battle. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any word of mine which should attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming. But I cannot refrain from tendering you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the Republic they died to save. I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Yours very sincerely and respectfully, Abraham Lincoln. That was a letter to Ms. Bixby in the Civil War. Needless to say, reading that letter worked. Let me read to you from another letter from the Apostle Paul. That letter is to the church at Ephesus. In the New Testament, it is called Ephesians. And I want you to turn, if you will, in your Bibles to chapter 5. There's not a greater chapter in the whole Bible on how families, especially husbands and wives, should conduct themselves toward one another. I want you to listen closely to this. If you are married, this will help you. If you're not married yet, this will help you. If you've been through marriage and you think you may never get married again, this will help you just in case you do or you have the opportunity to talk to someone who might. So this is helpful to all of us. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So that is the prevailing thought. Submit to one another. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. We are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, there are not many of us that can proclaim ourselves experts at anything. I certainly do not proclaim myself an expert on much. But I will tell you this. Sometimes results sort of have a way of speaking for themselves. 
And I will tell you unashamedly and unabashedly that I'm the most blessed man in the history of the world to be allowed and honored to have and experience and live in the kind of marriage that I do. And I, I have the best marriage I believe anybody ever has. Now, people get offended with me for saying stuff like that. That's like being offended at your doctor for saying, you know what, before I whack on your brain, I want you to know I've studied brain surgery and I'm one of the best in the country at it. Only an idiot would be offended at his doctor for being good at what he did. Y'all are quiet. Just because I read a sad letter, don't let it make us all cry. I'm saying to you that Pastor Donna and I have found a way to have a great marriage, and we're living it every day. So the good news is you can too. Arise and shine. All right. I don't like preachers that, that do silly preacher stuff, but I'm going to do a silly preacher thing today. I'm going to give you three points that start with the letter P. Purposefully, poignant, powerful, and appropriate. The last one started with an A. The first one is protect your marriage. Say this. Say, I need to protect my marriage. All right. What do you mean I need to protect my marriage, Pastor? Maybe you're aware of this, maybe you're not. Vice President Mike Pence recently came under great criticism and unfriendly fire from liberals because he made a statement. And the statement he made was that he did not ever want to be seen in a public place in the company of a woman who was not his wife. You know what they call that? They call that the Billy Graham rule. For all the years that Billy Graham ministered, he would never be seen in the company of another woman without one of his male associates there or his wife. He refused to go to lunch. He refused to have them in, in his room, of course. And he traveled a lot and he was all over the place because Billy Graham understood that it only took one moment for your witness to be devastated. You know what that's called? Wisdom. That's called wisdom. If you're a man in the house today, which means you were born that way, I want you to raise your hand. Now, put them back down. Be honest. I want total honesty. All right, your pastor's asking you for total honesty. How many of you men have ever seen a beautiful woman? Raise your hand. Well, some of you men are reaching. I've seen them. Okay, you can put them down. How many of you men are married? Okay, let me tell you, I got a word for you. There are no more beautiful women in the world to you. That is not a beautiful woman. That is walking death. You got to protect your marriage. I told you earlier that we now have a professor in one of our universities, I kid you not, who identifies as a hippopotamus. The world we live in. Why are you telling us these crazy things, Pastor? Because my first point is this. An unbiblical culture will never be a nurturing environment for a good marriage. An unbiblical culture will never be a nurturing environment for marriage. Now listen to me. In Jesus Almighty's name, you must not take your cues on what a marriage is supposed to be like from the culture in which we live. If you do, you will live in a soap opera or a TV reality show or a horrible movie about a romance that went sour. Shakespeare called those tragedies. You must not take your cues from marriage off of the Internet. For God's sake, not off of social media, not off of network television, not off of streaming shows. You must take your cues. How many of you want a, want a great marriage? Raise your hand. I want a great marriage. I want a power. Then you take your cues from one place, the Word of God. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this whole sermon, and I'm going to distill it down into a capsule. I'm going to feed it to you right now. You can all get up and leave after I say this if you want to, because it ain't going to get any better than this. I'd appreciate you staying because i got more to say. But <laughs> I kind of asked for that, didn't I? <laughs> all right, smart aleck. 
I'll be your huckleberry. Anyway, here it is. If you will bear the fruit of the Spirit to your spouse, and your spouse bear the fruit of the Spirit to you, you will have an awesome marriage. Now that's just ba-bam, kaplooey, fandango, hmm, that's it right there. Here's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Whoop, whoop. That's the real McCoy. Don't take your cues from the culture. Don't be unduly influenced by the culture. Don't try to pretend to be like the culture. Don't think the culture in which we live is something you should try to emulate or your marriage should be like. It should be a diametrically opposite dynamic from the culture. Your marriage should be biblically based. 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 And if it is, it will last and endure and it will flourish. If it is not, you are just biding time till it crashes and burns. Jesus needs to be Lord of your marriage. <clears throat> what does the guy identifying as a hippo have to do with that? Only to demonstrate how crazy people have become. In 1958, some guys with white jackets would have visited him, put him in a little van, carried him off for treatment. Now it's considered cool and progressive. Nothing cool about thinking you're a hippopotamus. I can't believe I'm even saying that in a public... <laughs> do I have to say that it's not... Do I actually have to articulate that it's not cool to think you're a hippopotamus? What, what has happened to our world? The second way you protect your marriage is this. People whose marriage has failed often become negative influencers. If you hang around a bunch of people who've recently been divorced, or sometimes only one. Now remember, remember, remember it only takes one person to empower your weakness. One. You start hanging around people who've been divorced, and they will begin to tell you how glorious it is. They'll begin to talk about freedom. They'll begin to talk about all the different people they've been able to date. They'll begin to tell you all about how much fun they're having. And after they talk to you and fill your head up with nonsense, they'll go home and cry themselves to sleep. It's amazing how people want you to be like them. Have you ever noticed that? Had somebody, you know, once in a while, we have people write us mean letters in the ministry. I know you don't, I know you don't realize that. I know you think that everybody's just angelic toward pastors. Had somebody write me a three-page letter one time. The whole thing was basically about, I just can't wait till God upsets your perfect little life. Like anybody has a perfect life. They were so filled with jealousy and anger. And they, they had this idea that I've got this perfect life. Man, nobody has a perfect life. I don't have a perfect life. We all struggle and fight we all go through things. But the thing is, you get to pick what your fight and your struggle is, and it ought not be with the woman or man you're married to. Let there be one place in the world where you can go and find peace. In the name of Jesus, let it be your home. Guys, if you think peace is getting in your truck and getting out of the house, you got a problem. Ladies, if you think peace is the bathtub with Calgon and... and, and uh, candles and pandora playing soft music and your door's locked so your husband can't get in to vex on you you got a problem you ought to be together each one's haven of peace and rest now i'm a, i'm gonna just creep out it's a thriller. don't 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 ask me i don't know where it came from Devils, devils. Um, I'm going to creep down further. I'll tell you something. In my opinion, see, there's the ambulance going to try to resuscitate a dying marriage right there. This is my opinion. I don't think most people actually have marriages. I think they have living arrangements where they try to work out living together and 
make whoopee once in a while, and that's supposed to be a marriage. Johnny, tell them about the consolation prize. That's not a marriage. Or you just get married, work out a living arrangement. You can take care of your area. I'll take care of my area. And once in a while, we'll get together, and then we'll just call it a marriage. We'll call that done. When I'm carving a bow drill set and I get to a certain point, I call it done, and it works. Marriage isn't like that. Marriage is something that you don't have to fight and struggle and hack and work on, I don't think, so hard as if you just have to make sure before you start you're doing the right thing. Most marriage mistakes occur prior to the altar where you say, I do. Now, how many of you have ever had a Spam milkshake? Potted meat pudding? Boiled okra pie with whipped cream? Anybody? Some things just don't go together. The thought of Spam milkshake just makes me feel green all over. Some things don't work together. Christians and non-Christians don't work together when they get married. You're trying to mix oil and water. It's never going to work. That's why I will not perform a wedding ceremony between a Christian and a non-Christian. Now listen, I'm going to give you a revelation here. If you're not married, if you're not married, raise your hand. Not married, raise your hand. Not married. Listen, hearken, therefore I say unto thee, unto my voice. If thou neverest dateth a non-Christianeth, thou shalt never marrieth a non-Christianeth. And there shall be peace in thy lifeeth. It's better to stay single and have a cute little dog than to marry the wrong person. Not only do people whose marriage has failed often become negative influencers, for some strange reason, some of them decide they want to become marriage counselors too. <laughs> I've never understood this. I really haven't. I had a guy one time at a church I was pastoring. He had been married three times and was working on his number four. He came to me and said, Pastor, I've had a lot of experience with this. I think I'd make a great married couples pastor. I'm glad I wasn't drinking any coffee out of... That's like saying, I'm a doctor, three out of four of my patients die, but I'm hoping for the best for you. <laughs> I'll pass. How many of y'all have ever been snow skiing? Snow skiers, raise your hand. Yeah, I love the snow ski. Snow skiing is like catching a fish and winding them in and feeling them pull the excitement. It's like that excitement all the way down the hill. Unfortunately, when you like to ski fast, like I do, sometimes the sudden stop at the bottom is not nearly so pleasant. <laughs> One time I was going down a, a hill. If you ever want to go to great snow ski in country, let me tell you where to go. Forget any place east of the Mississippi. It's a joke. Go to Winter Park, Colorado. That's where you want to go. And go on the Mary Jane side of the mountain and ski that big three-mile advanced blue intermediate slope i'm a pretty decent skier i ski i've skied black diamonds many times i don't do double black diamonds when you see two black diamonds go somewhere else those are not ski runs they are suicide leaps for crazy people who identify as hippos <laughs> when you see double black diamonds that basically means no trail here ski if you want you'll probably die that's code but I've skied black diamonds, and I've made it down. So my son and a friend were way down this slope about a mile and a half, and I had gotten stuck in get-off-the-chairlift traffic, so I decided I'm going to catch them, and I like to ski fast. Well, going down a ski slope, the idea is you control the speed of your descent by doing what's called traversing. You go back and forth, and the more times you go back and forth, the slower you go, and you control. You never just get at the top of a mountain, point your skis downhill, and go. I mean, the length of this auditorium, you'll be doing 40 miles an hour. It's amazing, unless you're me. <laughs> I skied out of the chute, got up to this little thing, and I just tucked. <clears throat> I was doing 70, I'm serious, at least 70, 75 miles an hour in short order. 
And I know that because the little lift ticket on the side of my face beat all the hair off my beard right over here. <laughs> it was going... And I passed by these objects, and they look like trees and stumps and tombstones, and I realized there are other skiers skiing, and I'm just blowing by them. So when I got to the bottom of the hill, there was a mogul field off to the right, and I knew it was going to take me about 100 yards to stop because I was going so fast. So I was going to get up on the edge of the moguls and kind of slide down them like that and make this dramatic stop and spray my son and his friend with snow and be real cool. The problem was didn't occur to me that the bindings on my ski boots were not set for advanced they were set for intermediate so the very first moment going 70 something miles an hour when I turned to the side and hit the brakes both my skis popped off so I'm like Clack! remember that old clip that started out the NBC wide worlds of sport the thrill of victory and then they show the guy fall off the ski jump, the agony of defeat. Bah! That's what happened to me. I hit that first mogul, blam, about as high as that drum cage there. And I flew up in the air, blam, 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 blam. My son's down there going, daddy! My friend's trying to claw his way up, you know. Ski patrols all over the mountain are converging on this idiot, you know. It was a weird feeling. I'm laying there. I noticed there was a severe pain in my right hip. Got the ski patrol skied up and said, you all right? I said, I don't know. <laughs> I said, I think so. He said, you know, we take people out of here in body bags for falls like that. I said, I can believe it. It kind of feels like I should be in one now. He said, let me help you up. I said, okay. You know, I, I, I kid you not. He, he helped me stand up, and my right leg started going He's looking at me. I said, hold injury. <laughs> it just wouldn't stop. I don't know. I still don't know what was going on. My right leg was going, you stupid idiot. Why did you do that to me? You ever had your parents spank you? And they go, you won't do that again. You, you know, that's what my leg was going, you stupid idiot. Why did you try to kill yourself like that? Anyway, my leg just. Six months later, my hip still hurt. Had a bruise on it the side of, size of the top of this pulpit just about. Terrible. It didn't kill me, didn't break any bones that I'm aware of. But the point is, if I were going to go snow skiing, I would want to talk to a snow skiing instructor who actually knew how to ski down the hill. I'm not a snow skiing instructor, but I play one on TV. No, I don't. I'm, I'm not one. I've been to some. I'm a fairly decent skier. I would venture to say next time I go snow skiing, I will probably ski slower than that on purpose. <laughs> and you just heard another way to have a great marriage. When your wife comes in and points her finger at you, and says, Roland Yarbrough, you will never ski that fast again. Yes, ma'am. Dynamite comes in small packages sometimes. Why would you want to talk to someone about successful marriage when they have failed at it three or four times? And why would the person who has failed at it three or four times suddenly believe they knew how to do it? Now, if you've been here, if you're in here this morning and you've had three or four divorces, I'm not jamming on you. I'm just telling you you're accountable for the advice you give people. So be sure... You're giving people good, sound advice, irrespective of how many times you've been married. You're kind of having fun with that. But the truth of the matter is, be careful who you listen to. And if you're giving advice, be careful what you say, because we're going to be held accountable for both. The next thing about protecting your marriage is, there is always somebody, dot, dot, dot. Pastor Donna had a boyfriend in high school, who always told her that she ought to be thankful for him because she wasn't pretty enough to ever have another boyfriend. Two points occur to me quickly. Three. Number one, either he can't see or he's an idiot. Number two, she should never believe that. Number three, he should be very thankful I did not know her then. 
Bible tells us to lay hands on people suddenly. Anyway. <laughs> There's always somebody. Guys, guys and gals, listen to me now. We, we joke about this a lot. It doesn't matter how out of shape you may feel, how unbeautiful you may think yourself. Doesn't matter how, doesn't matter who, doesn't matter what. There is always somebody that will cheat with your spouse. Always. There's somebody out there who will. If for nothing else, just the conquest of knowing they did it. You have to protect your marriage from that. One of the ways you do that is you never put yourself in that position in the first place. You never let those circumstances stack up. Now, let me just tell you, a a smart Christian woman is not just going to go hang out at bars and lounges a whole bunch. You are axing for trouble. You are. I'm not saying you can't ever go. I'm just saying, number one, why? Number two, who? Number three, what? We've got to be careful. We've got to be smart. Secondly, gentlemen, if you will treat her like you need to be treating her, she will not venture out looking for somebody else. And that just doesn't mean, I'm going to be careful what I say here, but that doesn't mean just physiological prowess, if you know what I'm saying. That means love. It means a little bit of romance. You know what? There's a, the guys in this country, a lot of them ha- have this weird idea that romance is somehow unmanly. Oh, you've forgotten about the greatest warriors who ever lived on the planet, the samurai. Still today, the greatest warriors who ever lived, samurai warriors. You know what? You know what a lot of them did? A lot of them wrote poetry. I don't understand haikus, but they wrote them. One of the greatest Israeli warriors who ever lived was King David, and he wrote the biggest songbook in the Bible, played the harp. I don't see many guys walking down the street today playing a harp. Not real masculine, they don't think. See, this is, again, buying into the cultural norm. You can't watch sitcoms and decide, hey, that's how a man's supposed to act. Men are romantic dolts. All they want to do is talk about cars and sports and drink beer and act stupid. If you believe that, that's what you're going to be. That's not the way a man behaves. That's not the way a gentleman behaves himself. Don't buy into the cultural lie. Hollywood puts that stuff out because they think that's the way men actually are. And I guess a lot of them must be. But you shouldn't be like that. Ladies, All I said was ladies, and I got an amen. <laughs> Somebody's like, yeah, I want to hear their side of it. If you will treat your husband the way you ought to, he won't go looking either. And I, again, don't just mean... woohoo. <laughs> I mean adult conversation. I mean the absence of nagging. Understand this story. A woman kept asking her husband to cut the grass, cut the grass, cut the grass, cut the grass. He always found something else to do. Finally, one day, he came home. She was out in the yard with a pair of scissors cutting the grass. He said, I'll be right back. She thought, yes, he's going to get the lawnmower. He walked in the house, came out with a toothbrush, gave it to her and said, when you're done, don't forget to sweep the sidewalk. They say he'll walk again, but never without a limp, you know. (laughs) Don't pester anybody. I hate hate flies. Don't you hate when you get a fly in your house? Why do they always find their way to the bedroom? You're laying in bed and you hear... Now, 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 night's over for rolling. The hunt is on. The lights are on, the hunt is on, no, no peace until the fly is dead. Same with a mosquito. You lay down in your bed at night. Somehow this little demonic pest got in the house. And it's over! We've got to kill the mosquito. Nobody enjoys being pestered. 
being pestered, whether at a low volume or a high volume, is not going to enhance your argument or your desire. If we will be sweet to one another. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. In the Greek, that word is kindness. It means being kind. If we'll just be nice to each other. That's all it takes. You know what the biggest problem in marriage is? Every marriage counselor in the world will tell you the top four problems in marriage are in order of of occurrence. Number one, communication. Number two, sex. Number three, finances. And number four, whatever else they decide it is. Mixed family, probably. None of that's true. I know. I've been doing this 35 years. I've talked to thousands of married people. The number one problem in marriage is S-E-L-F. Self. I want my way, and I'm going to make you do what I want you to do. Really, it boils down to a power struggle. Who's going to be in control of the marriage? That's what the biggest problem in marriage is. But that's too biblical for your average Freudian psychologist to adhere to. But it is true. There's always somebody. Old Arkansas hillbilly went to his first hotel for the first time. He'd never been in one before. Walked in the lobby and looked around at all the beautiful things. Kids were with him. His wife was kind of still coming out of the van. Hanging around the front door looking at the revolving door. She'd never seen one of those. Old hillbilly walked over to these two silver doors. Elderly man with a walker walked in. Doors closed behind him. A few minutes later, a young man in his 30s walked out. A few minutes later, the doors opened again. An old lady in a walker, she walked in. A few minutes later, the doors opened. A beautiful, curvaceous 30-year-old walked out. The old hillbilly looked at his son and said, Boy, go get your mama. (laughs) He'd never seen an elevator before. You may wish you had one of those. You may think you need one. But I'm going to tell you something. There's always somebody out there who will destroy your marriage. And there's always a devil around to help organize it. So don't help him by being thoughtless and careless. Never, ever, 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 ever try to make your spouse jealous. Never. Never, never, ever, 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 never, ever embarrass your spouse in public. Always, 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 always live your life in such a way that the person who knows you best respects you most. Second point, second P in the list. Be proactive in your marriage. Number one, protect your marriage. Number two, be proactive in your marriage. Number one, be intentionally thoughtful. Be intentionally thoughtful. It takes effort to be thoughtful. And the reason it does is that we are all born selfish. We're all born worrying about ourselves, how we feel, what's going on in our lives, thinking thoughts like, you got to look out for yourself or nobody else will. You better take care of number one because nobody else ever will. Those are the thoughts of lonely people. Let me just tell you, be intentionally thoughtful. Ask yourself, how can I be a blessing to my spouse? How can I make my spouse smile? What can I do to make them not be able to wait to get home? Pastor Don and I have been married 37 years this August 24th. And we have a hard time driving in separate vehicles from here to our house without talking on the phone. That's true. She will come into the living room and put her makeup on on the couch sitting beside me just because she wants to be close to me. Sometimes I'll go sit in the most uncomfortable seat in the house, which is on the side of the bathtub, and watch her put her makeup on just because I want to be with her. And we've been married 37 years. I hate to be away from her. I hate to take trips where I spend time away from her. I can't can't wait to hear the garage door go up when that car uh, comes in the driveway. I can't wait to hear her call me pudding of the pie. I call her, I call her pudding pie. She started that when we first got married. Pudding pie. And so it just kind of stuck. So now she calls me pudding of the pie. Kind of sounds like a medieval thing, you know. Can you imagine this kingdom? They're having a jousting tournament. All these mighty knights are lined up with their lances and swords and helmets and armor. Here we have Ragnar of the Glen. 
Here we have Brutus of the Black Forest, and here we have Puddin of the Pie. <laughs> it's just not going to work, man. I'm dead before I get out there. <laughs> who, who did he say, Ragnar? <laughs> Puddin of the Pie. I'm not scared of you. <laughs> Being thoughtful means taking the focus of your concern off of your own needs and thinking about somebody else's. Being thoughtful means being intentionally aware of the other person's needs and desires and wants. Being thoughtful is what separates men from boys in romance. Being thoughtful. And, and, and understand. I'm, I'm going to say something here now. Y'all going to have to give me some grace. Everybody say, grace, preacher. And say, I mean it. You said. I'm going to use a term here, and some of you are going to know what it means, and if you don't, don't ask. But I'm sick and tired of hearing these men tease one another about being whooped. A man who wants to make his wife happy is not whooped. He is smart. And a woman who wants to make her husband happy is not in bondage. She is intelligent and wise and insightful. Be intentionally thoughtful. Choose proactively to think about how you can make your spouse happy. That is not too hard for you to do. You can do this. Secondly, be purposefully communicative. Be purposefully communicative. And I mean more than just one word and grunt. How was your day? Fine. How you feeling? Mm-hmm. You're not communicating. You can teach a dog to say, okay. <laughs> I've heard dogs say, I love you. I love you. I love you. A little, little, a little Siberian husky or something. You say, I'm going to say identically, I love you. I love you. I had a dog that spoke a foreign language one time. He, he was retarded. He was speaking in some language. I know he was retarded because every day I let him out of his pen, he ran about 10 yards straight dead on into a pine tree. When he died, he had pine bark in his forehead. I couldn't get it out. It healed up over it. He looked at me and go, Are you He wasn't howling or anything. He was trying to talk to me. I'm thinking, Hungry? Thorn? What? I didn't know. His name was Nick. Somebody said that in the first year of marriage, the husband listens to the wife. In the second year of marriage, the wife listens to the husband. In the third year of marriage, both of them talk, and the neighbors are the ones who listen. <laughs> Should not be that way. Be purposefully communicative. I know how it feels to work 15 hours on a freight dock in 99 and 100 degree weather and the trucks I worked in were 130 to 40 degrees inside and if you touched your back, we all work without shirts on, you touch your back on the top of the truck, you had a blister instantly. I know what it's like to work in Lakeland, Florida on a, fr on a, a freight dock. I know what that feels like. I know what it's like to crop tobacco in a field for $10 a day. All day, sun up to sundown, you followed a mule around and cropped tobacco and put the tobacco leaves and glad to have $10 a day. I know what that feels like. I know what hard work is like. I've done it. I know what it's like to be in a wet well 30 feet deep and have an entire apartment complex poop on your head. That's just the truth. I know what that feels like. You just think you've been pooped on. <laughs> I've been pooped on. When you get home from days like that, all you want to do is take a shower, get something to eat, put your feet up, and go into a somnambulic trance where you don't have to think or do anything. That's not how you have a great marriage. Don't give the best of you to the least important thing in your life. Save something for your spouse, no matter how tired you are. I want to tell you something that the Navy SEALs teach. You might not know this. The Navy SEALs teach that when you think you have spent yourself completely and you don't have one ounce of strength or energy left, that virtually every person still has 40% left. They just never tap into it because it's too hard. Sometimes being communicative takes effort 
because you're just so tired. You're just so mentally and emotionally drained. It just takes a lot of work. You don't know what to say. Listen, get good at this because it's important. And one of the ways you get good at this is instead of telling somebody so much, ask them about how their day is going. Sit down and ask your wife, how are you feeling? What was, tell me about your day. What's going on in, in your life? Just share, share with me your hopes and dreams, you know? I know on a, a Tuesday night at 5.30 with the news coming on, you might not feel much like talking about hopes and dreams. Turn the news off, stop scrolling, look in your wife's eyes and talk to her. Look in your husband's eyes and talk to him. Rather than a honey-do list, it's a honey-how-are-you list. Be intentionally communicative. This takes effort, but it works. It engenders feelings of value in the other person. You actually get to know each other as friends and hopefully soulmates rather than just living together, sharing a space, and hee-hee once in a while. Number three, be willfully romantic. Be willfully romantic. I'm going to tell you something. Any man, any woman can learn a little bit about romance. It's quiet in the house. They're thinking dig too. Any man, any woman can learn how to be romantic. Romance does not always end up in bed, by the way. Romance is just treating each other sweetly. Romance is just being kind. One guy was teaching a seminar, and he was basically telling people, when we don't talk about intimacy, he was telling people that his studies had proven that People who, who uh, got happy, we'll say, <laughs> every day were the happiest. Married couples who got happy once a week were sort of happy, and people who got happy only once a year weren't very happy at all. So he said, show you an example. How many of you make whoopee every day? And a bunch of people raised their hands. They were all smiling and beaming, you know. And he said, uh, all right, how many of y'all average about once a week? And some more raised their hands, and they didn't seem real happy, and he said, how about once a year? And one old guy in the back stood up, and he was like, yeah! <laughs> and the guy said, why are you so happy just once a year? He said, because today's the day. <laughs> so, <laughs> but romance is not all about the bedroom. Romance is about your heart. Romance is about love. Romance is about how you treat each other. And you cannot make up on Valentine's Day what you don't do for the other 364 days in the year. And you can't make up on anniversary what you fail to do on the other days. And you can't make up on a birthday. And a card and a flower and some chocolates only goes so far. They want you to grab them and bring them close and look in their eyes and tell them how much you love them. And if you're thinking, oh, I, I just ain't me, preacher. Well, you can learn that. It sure is fun to try anyhow. Romance is something that we all need to be aware of and we all need to be intentional and purposeful and willful about. I'm going to make my home a romantic haven. Little things mean a lot. You know, for some women... They'd rather have you do the dishes than go buy them a heart-shaped candy box. Oh, I got a lot of amens on that. I might have just stepped in something there. I don't know. I, <laughs> a lot of men would rather have a fresh home-cooked meal than you standing in saran wrap at the door when they get home. I didn't get as many amens on that one. Maybe I totally missed God on that one. I don't know. You men are out there going, let me see. I don't know about that, preacher. <laughs> Seriously, be willfully romantic. Care about the romance in your house. Not just sex, romance. Not just bedroom stuff, but romance. How you treat each other throughout the day. We, we can't, Don and I cannot hardly walk by each other in the house without some kind of little touch or some kind of little hug or kiss. And we all the time charge each other kissing tolls. The other day I was going to go make her coffee. She's, I don't know how, I figured out how this one works yet. I was going to make her coffee and she charged me a kissing toll. Wait, now I'm making you coffee and I got to pay the kissing toll. But see, you're stupid if you don't want to pay the kissing toll. So I go over there and pay the kissing toll. 
it's kind of like the guy there's this great mystery in the world in our culture if you hadn't noticed it's like everybody wants to put their two cents worth in but it's only a penny for your thoughts somebody's making a penny somewhere i haven't figured that out yet (laughs) number three and i'm going to close with this point and this is where we kind of come down to something a little bit more serious and that is to be prayerful together in your marriage You want to be prayerful together in your marriage. Now, ladies, I'm going to tell you, anybody can change. I have a fundamental disagreement with law enforcement on that. Most law enforcement agencies do not believe people can fundamentally change. Now, I know there are exceptions to individual officers. I said agencies predominantly don't believe people can change. But that runs askew and across the grain of what the Bible says. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. All these things I'm sharing with you today, you can learn to do. Probably nobody in here, maybe one person, could, could go out in the woods today with a knife and carve a bow drill set and make an ember and blow it into flame the first time. It's an acquired skill set. A lot of knowledge goes into it. But, and I know you may be thinking, yeah, and who cares? (laughs) Well, you might not ever need to, and I hope you don't. It's fun to know. But just like that, all these other things are acquired skills too. So is learning how to pray together and have a Jesus-based family. Now, let me just tell you, here's what happens. I'm going to creep on this one. Most guys get embarrassed by this because they have behaved themselves in such a way as to feel like a hypocrite when they try to do it. I challenge all siblings, all children, all spouses to never make your husband or wife feel like a hypocrite when they try to change and do the right thing. Because you've heard them take the Lord's name in vain and speak terrible things doesn't mean they're disqualified from praying together in your house. Men... You are the spiritual leader in your household. God Almighty is looking at you to be the spiritual head of that household. It is your responsibility. It is not your wife's responsibility, unless she's a single parent. If you're married, it is your husband's responsibility to lead the home spiritually. It's your job to run the Bible study, run the prayer time, and decide what you're going to do and lead the family in prayer. If you feel uncomfortable doing that, then I promise you, just like anything else, practice makes perfect. Practice makes perfect. Just start doing it. I don't know what to do. Keep it simple. Read a passage of Scripture. Pray. Ask God to give you some truth about that. doesn't have to be a three-minute outline and preach for 45 minutes and take up an offering from your kids. <laughs> don't need a board. Don't need a sound. If I come to your house and you've got a little mini sanctuary set up, I'm going to say, Brother, maybe we took this a little too far. you know. But Sit down on the couch with a Bible. Read a Bible story. Talk about it. Ask, let, the, let the people ask, kids and wife and everybody, ask questions about it. Talk about how it applies to their everyday life now, the principles of it. And then pray together. Ask the kids anything you want me to pray with you about. Instead of just going to bed and, and, and reading your 17-year-old some little story out of Aesop's fables, you know. That was a joke, you realize that. Go in there and pray with them. Model for your family what a man of God looks like. Women, model for your family what a woman of God looks like, what she dresses like, what she behaves like, what she talks like, what she acts like. Model it. Work it out. Be prayerful together in your marriage. I hate to use colloquialisms that are worn out, but the family that prays together stays together. There's truth in it. It's like an old slingshot that still works. It's about wore out, but it'll still shoot a rock. The family that prays together really does stay together. Men, this is what a godly woman really wants. We all think she wants 2% body fat and 20-inch biceps and and an 8-pack. And she wouldn't argue with that. (laughs) But what she really wants is a man of God in the house. What she really wants is a man who lives biblical principle. It doesn't mean you're perfect. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about direction. You're trying to go in the right direction. Women, men, give each other some grace just like God gave us grace. 
Forgive our humanity. Forgive the past. Let me tell you some secret about, a great secret about great marriages. Great marriages are made up of great forgivers. We've got to be able to forgive the past and move on. Can't hold the past against each other. So this is what a real, really a godly woman really wants. And my, uh, Dave, if you'll, come, if you'll come play, the band, if you'll come back. And the last one is this. Nothing will fuse your hearts together better than praying together. In my opinion, there's no force more powerful in the whole wide world than a husband and wife praying together. I think there's a kind of unity and a kind of bondedness that takes place in that moment that's difficult to describe. I think one of the most powerful things in the world is when a man and a woman of God pray together. All these things I've shared with you today, every one of them, anybody in here can decide you're going to do them. They don't require any special talent. They don't require any natural gift or ability that somebody else have that you does not. You do not. They don't require any kind of supernatural interaction. They basically all simply require good quality decision making. We can all grow. We can all change. We can all be better at being husbands and wives. And you can't be both. You have to be one or the other. But we can all be better at being a great husband. We can all be better, those of us who are, who are women, can be better at being godly wives. These are important matters. And as part of our IFAM series, because these fine details of communication, of romance, of how you treat each other, of praying together, establishing a, a family altar in your home, uh, let me just tell you this. Please don't ever make the mistake of marrying somebody thinking you're going to improve them or you're going to change them or you're going to make them better, especially in this area of spiritual maturity. Don't ever marry a guy thinking, well, you know, he's kind of rough around the edges. He's not real spiritual, doesn't like church much. But if, if I marry him, I can, I can influence him to do eh, eh. That's a, lo- a lot harder hill to climb up than you think it is. I'd like for everybody in the house to stand to your feet. I'd like for every married couple that's here and every person who's married, even if your spouse is not with you, just slip out of your seats and come gather across the front.